and welcome to Talking and Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. And we have Mimi Lewis joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. Hey, Zahava. This month, we're talking about the resource generation with Kate Poole and Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg for our first segment. And for our second segment, we're talking about different sources around giving tzedakah as we think about our own giving philosophies. Mimi, you want to tell us more about resource generation? Yeah. So um, some of this is just pulled straight from the website, but we're going to learn more. Resource Generation describes itself as a multiracial membership community of young people with wealth and or class privilege committed to the equitable distribution of wealth, land, and power. The organization asks people in the top 10% of the economic distribution to pledge to give away all or almost all of their inherited wealth to social justice movements. And we're really excited to be joined by two members of Resource Generation, Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg and Kate Poole, to talk about the organization, its mission, and how it connects to their Jewish lives. First of all, welcome, Jessica and Kate. We're so happy to have you on the podcast. We're happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. <laughs> thank you. Um, and I wonder if there are pieces that you want to add to that general um, description of resource generation and give us a sense of what called you to this work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can start. Um, so when I was growing up, I had the sense that my family was comfortable that we had more than enough, but I was told that we weren't, you know, we weren't rich like Bill Gates. We weren't like that rich. So I didn't need to be thinking about money that much. Um, but also that money wasn't a problem and I could do the things that I wanted to do without thinking about how much they cost or, you know, like what was possible. And so when I began to learn about economic justice and racial justice, I got really interested in what it meant to be a person with some access to wealth who also cared about like social justice and cared about the well-being of people beyond my family. And so I got really politicized around like Buddhist economics and Jewish economics and what it meant to like integrate spiritual practices and your economic actions. And then eventually, I think kind of around the time of Occupy Wall Street, I like went to the launch of Occupy Wall Street. I was like really riled up about like capitalism and how capitalism was hurting the earth. And I was beginning to ask questions around, okay, well, is there money in my name? Or like, what is my responsibility to reckoning with my family's access to wealth? And I went through a long process around that, but was really lucky to find resource generation because I think so many people are, especially if they're activists, but they also have class privilege or access to wealth, they aren't sure how to integrate those pieces of their personality. So I was really grateful to find resource generation and to find community to do this work in. Um, and Resource Generation has local chapters. So in many cities or at many colleges, there'll be a Resource Generation chapter that does local organizing. And then there's also like a national um, nonprofit that hosts conferences and um, holds relationships and works closely with movements for justice, like the Movement for Black Lives or like uh, Right to the City to do campaigns that support uh, poor and working class led organizing. So yeah, I had a similar... Uh, experience growing up as Kate of like comfortable but told not too rich and not to think too much about it um, and had a similar like got politicized around racial and economic justice queer and trans organizing um, and then had a friend be like kind of like slide the card across the table <laughs> metaphorically and be like maybe you want to check out resource generation just based on how you have no debt and like went to a fancy college and all these things um 
And yeah, I think like I had kind of two or a, f- a few kind of like um, moments in my resource generation life. I was living in uh, the Twin Cities and um, a group came together, somewhat organized by resource generation and a little bit broader at the time that did a kind of like study, a praxis group where we learned together about kind of exploring our uh, family money stories and also like learned more about wealth and how it is distributed and uh, not <laughs> in the country. And um, the, that's one of the things that resource generation for many years has done is um, group get organized groups of people to kind of like do the personal, emotional and spiritual work of like learning our thinking about our family's history around money and our personal relationship to money, what we were taught about money, just build up the muscle of comfort in like talking about it and acknowledging it and being with it. And, but doing that really tied to action. Um, so the idea of a praxis group is that it's both like study and practice, right? That you're like, not, you you know, there's like learning for the sake of action. Very Jewish, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds, sounds right. Um, and then when I moved to Philly, um, Kate and I were both part of kind of like a wave of organizing the resource generation chapter in Philly where when we came together we realized not just Kate and I but a whole crew of brilliant people um, that study towards personal action was like really solid and important and we wanted if we were going to be organized as rich people we wanted to be like public and visible and part of campaigns for economic justice where we could say tax us more, where we could say fund schools fairly, where we could say, um, well, those are two of the two of the really big things we were saying at the time. Um, and that's been, I think, a kind of like one of the something powerful over the years of resource generation that people have grown into more ability to take collective action and be visible as people with class privilege and access to wealth that we're not just trying to... Um, we're, we're like working on a personal level and then there's also like actually power in organizing rich people to try to change systems um, around how wealth is distributed in this country. Is there um, a giving component of being a part of resource generation? Like is there a dues or just like an encouragement to give to certain organizations? Yeah, absolutely. So Resource Generation has a giving pledge that they ask members to take. And it's all laid out in these different levels, I think, on their website. But I think that a baseline is to start by giving away maybe 5% to 7% of your net wealth so that you are not growing your wealth over time, so that you're at least giving it so that it's holding. Um, And then there's a next level, which is giving 10%, you know, or giving more. And with the idea of supporting folks in eventually giving away all or most of their inheritance. And so like Jessica was speaking to, like a lot of the praxis groups support people in making bigger gifts. Sometimes people don't understand like where the money is held, like where it's being invested in. Like, do they have control over the trust? Are they able to give? Are there, is there a family foundation that they could move more money through? And I think a lot of it is building confidence and uh, building the capacity to make gifts or to shift where the investments are held or to show up more fully as like a as your whole self including like the class privilege part and is it really focused on people who have inherited wealth or is it is resource generation also a place for people who like maybe young people making a significant salary there's both so it's about folks in the top 10 percent, and so that could be by income based on your age or it could also be through inheritance I think 
And it could also be through, they also have organized historically people with class privilege. So folks that maybe don't have a lot of inherited wealth, but went to college debt free or... It's funny to talk about because there's kind of like in our G terms, I don't have my hands on like a family foundation or a big chunk of money um, compared to some other folks in our G. And also um, like I haven't inherited a large chunk. I will, Bizarat Hashem, not too soon, but like, um, but I still, so like I'm in resource generation because I absolutely have class privilege and more access to wealth than most most people in the U.S. and resource generation has been a place where that has fortified me to show up responsibly in movements for economic justice and also just given me a lot of tools for thinking about moving money um, speedily and responsibly and in a way that feels uh, values aligned and even articulating what it like what those values are. so, yeah, there's a range within research generation of, like, where people are coming from. And um, I guess I would say, I think, like, uh, I also, I mean, I guess I would say I've also experienced, like, really different in different cities, kind of, like, what, you know, geographically, kind of, like, what vibes, you know, what things kind of, like, feel like and look like. I would say, if you're listening to this and you're curious and you think this might be you, come on out. Come meet us. It's cool. There's, like, you know, I, I, I would rather more people who are, like, I have some money to give and need some like help and support and thinking about it and uh, like read the website, listen to resources, meet people, come to things and there'll be some of it, you know, there's, there's like the family foundation stuff. I don't have a family foundation. I don't go to the family foundation stuff. And also I'm grateful to be in community with people who are doing work with their family foundations. So Kate, you mentioned a little bit about Jewish economics um, and Buddhist economics. And I'm wondering that, when you say Jewish economics, that means nothing to me beyond like tithing and leaving the four corners of a field. But what does that what does that mean to you? <laughs> well, tithing is great. Don't undersell tithing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fair enough. Yeah. So, I mean, so Kate and I have talked a lot. Both of us have been really motivated in our money moving by chuva as actually an economic concept by reparation, like chuva as a, as an on-ramp to, and a Jewish framework around reparations. Um, and so I think, I think there's like, when I think Jewish economics, I think there is like wisdom in the tradition that is specifically like, what are you to do with money? How do you give tzedakah? How do you steward land and wealth and resources? When I think Jewish economics, I also think about just kind of like being in right relationship with other people and or you know I think about like Jewish wisdom about community and kahila and taking care of each other and like that to me really motivates a lot of how I think about wealth redistribution in my life yeah and to back it up a little bit like economy is that's like about the care of the home and so the management of home is like what you know eco economy means and so there's this way in which economics or finance can seem really opaque or really hard to understand but really it's about how we manage our home like manage our resources like manage um, our lives together our communities and so I think that for me I've always been really interested in how these core values or like the religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs I have or my family has, how they track onto our work or our giving or like the ways that we are in the world, the ways that we're sharing resources or holding on to resources. And so 
I think that that framework has been really powerful and been a really powerful like path into understanding like economics more or finance more. It's really interesting. I mean, just to sort of underscore that I feel at least that it's revolutionary to bring in the ideas of chuva, repentance, kihila community to money. Because often, at least in my Jewish practice, there's the idea of tithing, there's, you know, the tzedakah box or whatever, like you grew up with. And then there are the interpersonal values and or the or the inner spiritual values. And those are separate worlds. I'm just sort of reflecting on the way that my Jewish education kept those separate um, and what that has meant for how I understand big words like economy. I think also it's it can be tricky to talk about like money or wealth in a Jewish context. I think there's so much mm-hmm. about like anti-Semitism or, or internalized anti-Semitism that makes Jewish organizations or institutions afraid to come into those conversations together or to feel some amount of shame or confusion about broaching them. And so it's been really powerful to bring those conversations about money and wealth into Jewish community and especially to like interrupt like anti-Semitic tropes around like the class background of Jews in America as a whole or around um, what it means to be Jewish. That's like a little bit on the broader level, but yeah. You know, for me, it's interesting to hear. So there's something like that I want to recognize is a little bit jarring or discordant um, when I hear, you know, Jessica, you described yourselves and the members of RG as quote unquote rich people more than once. And there's something really almost revolutionary about being willing to say that um, and being willing to acknowledge, like everybody wants to think they're middle class. Everybody's middle class, right? Like, um, and you both described the way you were raised as, oh, comfortable, but we weren't, we weren't told we were rich people, right? There's a sense that, um, you know, I even, I even saw thrown around on um, on social media a few weeks back that um, uh, as a Democrat, Democratic candidate, Joe Biden has made some kind of pledge that taxes will not go up on people making less than $300,000 a year. And the amount of the income distribution that is above 300, that is not middle class, right? At a certain point, understanding where you really fall in the economic distribution and what that means for your responsibility to others feels kind of revolutionary. Yeah. Um, And I think there's also, though, this sense in the Jewish community that we're not as secure as we look, right? We, we, we're not that many generations removed from real poverty or real, real deprivation, or there's, there's a strong sense that, um, we have to take care to make sure that, uh, that what our grandparents had to really work to build is something that we can pass on to our children. And there's something very disruptive to that concept in what you all are doing. And so it's interesting to hear you talk that way. And it strikes a chord with me, I think, within my Jewish community culture. And I'm wondering how that feels to you within the culture of your Jewish communities. I I guess at this point, I'm kind of like, if when I think about what is most threatening to Jewish continuity, I think it's climate change. Like, I, I don't like we there's not like sustainable life on the planet if we don't redistribute wealth, like not for our babies, not for anyone's babies. Um, so that, like, when I think about, like, protecting Jewish futures and Jewish communities and Jewish life, wealth hoarding and the, and I'll let Kate talk more about, like, the extractive economy, like, our current economy that is, like, killing people and 
the planet, there is no Jewish future in that because there's no future in that. Like, we're not going to (laughs) survive. So I want us to. I want Jews to survive. I want all cultures and traditions and critters and life on the planet to survive. And like wealth redistribution is a strategy for that for me. And I think, I mean, again, when, when we think about kind of like what Jewish concepts do we bring into economic justice organizing and wealth redistribution. I think our spiritual tradition teaches that everything is interconnected. And I think my ancestors, many of my ancestors understood that with like the people who they knew and saw and lived with in their lifetime, they like saw interconnection and they practiced interconnection. They happened to like some of them like not know very much about people on other continents, but I do. So like I'm kind of, I feel like when I'm kind of like wealth redistribution towards a much more just global sphere. I'm, I'm like taking what they taught me or what I've inherited around interconnection and, and bringing it to what I see happening now. And it's the same wisdom about like all things are connected. We are dependent on one another. We all have the divine and holiness in us and the earth is sacred. That's like very old Jewish wisdom. And then just like how we live it in our time for me, wealth redistribution and, um, a more fair economy is, or like a fair economy <laughs> is how I live some of those Jewish values. It's funny because when I think about this in a, like specifically with the Jewish lens, I think about how, you know, especially right now, but just in general for the last like 10 to 20 years, like within the Jewish community, there has been this real concentration of wealth and resources within a few mega donors, they're called, and they really do control so much of the conversation, um, which is really, I mean, we've seen it be really problematic in a number of ways, both because like they can be like Sheldon Adelson and really drive um, institutions in a very specific direction. And also because sometimes, you know, they turn out to be abhorrent people who, um, and that, that can kind of like have all kinds of ramifications for organizations that have allowed those people to really drive their priorities for a long time. So that's like one thing that I think about had that has been happening around um, wealth in the Jewish community. But the other thing is that like, I think a lot of people feel like um, Jewish communal life is too expensive for them. Like joining a synagogue can be really expensive and Hebrew school or day school can be really expensive. And, all of the kind of trappings of Jewish life. Buying um, a house in the right neighborhood. Totally. Um, all of these things can be much more expensive than people want them to be. Um, and even for people who like do have access to what, what would buy all... <laughs> by all other means be considered like enormous wealth. I think there are a lot of people who feel like the pressure is really on and they feel like um, they have to kind of tighten their belts because the kind of trappings of Jewish life are so, can be so expensive. Um, And I, I don't, I don't really know how to square that circle because in my mind, like I am much more, some of those things are not that important to me. Like ultimately every year when I pay my synagogue dues, I'm always like, I can't believe I'm paying this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and, um, and it's just because like, 
you know, I like my synagogue, but at this point I haven't even been there since March. And like, it doesn't look like I'm going to be there during the high holidays. So it's really like I'm paying for an idea. Um, and you know, we don't send our kids to Jewish day school, but if we did, then like my financial situation would be dramatically different. Like there's a lot of, um, a lot of decisions around Jewish life that have like a pretty steep financial cost. And I think I have heard a lot of conversations about people being like, is someone going to like actually leave the Jewish community because things are too expensive, which I think is interesting because there is also this feeling within the Jewish community that like a kind of implicit understanding that like people have money, people have access. Um, And it's, I have really started to think about the tension between those two. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm so grateful you named all those things because I think it speaks to, I don't know, like I'm grateful that y'all have a podcast and you're naming and kind of explicitly like pulling apart some of these themes because I think I think something that's really hard about Jewish community is when people aren't naming like how wealth is in the community or how money is moving um, or what are the ways that like money and wealth can build like communal infrastructure or build safety, you know, build these different things, then it's harder to understand like what's happening. And I think that something, some of the pieces you named are about like real estate or about um, how do congregants share the cost of like uh, having this like shul, having the synagogue together. And I think that part of this landscape of this work is that we're like living in this really extractive economy like we're living in late stage capitalism there's like really gross inequality is happening the jewish community is a community of people of like many races many classes you know like many genders it's like a very diverse community and so there's this way in which we're like embodying or like we are feeling the effects of like how the extractive economy is set up like that's happening at the you know at the level of the jewish community as well or the jewish economy I think that something that's really powerful, like work I get really excited about, is building like new infrastructure, like new economic infrastructure that reflects Jewish values or reflects um, these principles that we've been exploring. And so, for example, like Jessica and I are part of a shul that, um, Colt Sedek, like in West Philly, where they've been experimenting with like, what are different models for looking at our community wealth or our community resources and figuring out like how we <laughs> pay our rabbi or how we like pay for this space or how we move money together. Um, and I think that having those conversations about class or about wealth at the community level, then we can get more creative about how we're like sharing resources or sharing wealth. I wonder if, you guys can help me find words for something that has come up a few times in my life. Um, We can try. Talking with friends, obviously, in the past, I don't know, I would say five years, but especially the past month or two, we've been talking a lot about race and racism. I talked with some friends recently about the recurring donation I'm making to Movement for Black Lives, and I had a friend share with me this idea that, you know, you're giving because you feel bad and you could give that recurring donation to buy X number of mosquito nets in sub-Saharan Africa and fight malaria and and help end malaria. It's always the bed nets. Why is it always the bed nets? (laughs) Because there's (laughs) there's this thing called effective altruism and 
Peter Singer basically identified that you can get that 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 this is the best bang for our buck, malaria mosquito nets. And I can't fight that math. I'm not going to fight that math, but I want to fight the idea. I want to fight for what it means to give to a movement instead of a mosquito net. And like, why is that valuable? And why is maybe that Jewish? I think that there's a lot of weird kind of if this, then that that's happening in effective altruism. And part of it is around people having a finite amount, like kind of like splitting up people's like economic selves and being like, okay, well, there's this amount and this amount is to be used for giving. And my purpose in giving is saving as many lives as possible. And so I'm going to buy bed nets. I mean, but I agree that I feel like there's probably enough bed nets that have been purchased at this point because I've seen enough like articles or books about it. But like, I think in reality, like the reason to support social movements is that it's not that people aren't doing enough giving towards bed nets that's creating like a malaria problem or, you know, like allowing people to die. Like the problem is that we're living in like an extractive economy. We're living in capitalism, like the way that like resources and the way that wealth are being managed are like totally at odds with what would create like resilient, regenerative, like restorative economies or like health and wealth for the widest number of people. And so what we need to be doing is we need to be fighting against the extractive economy, fight the bad, and also building the new, the new infrastructure, like the new power that's going to create the world that we want to live in. And so Jessica and I have been a part of, we really love this group movement generation that's in the Bay Area. And they've been doing this four-part course correction series on like the pandemic and power building. And part of what they're laying out is their own theory of change around what is it going to take to transform our world so that we're living in like balance um, and in alignment with like our deep and sacred visions for like what's possible. And so for me, when I think about moving resources, like it's not just about like I have a giving budget monthly. It's about what does my work look like? What does my spending look like? What does my giving look like? How am I in relationships? Like how am I showing up? Like what are the ways that I can use like my whole self and my whole life towards building this better world? And so that's why. And I think there's also something kind of like cold and sad about <laughs> effective altruism because I think the reality is that like the things that help us feel like love and belonging and connection are like building relationships and like being connected to people and places to movements for justice um figuring out like how to transform like using spiritual practices and rituals to support uh shifts whether that's like around like alignment in terms of anti-racist practices or it's around wealth redistribution I think the idea that you could math out what the most effective money moving is to me lacks some humility of like the great mystery of creation and um, relationships and the world. So one, just the idea that like this is the most effective gift that in my mind is like a mindset that will actually like keep shut people down from organizing the idea that there is at all a most effective gift is a thing that keeps people from giving because then like mm -hmm. is what I'm doing the most effective gift oh no I have to find the most effective like it's a real feel I don't mean to like use a robot voice to mock it I I have felt it I'm roboting my own voice but like um but I think yeah so just first of all I think it's like a thing that shuts down rather than feeds giving and I feel like 
what I've learned both from resource generation, but also groups like uh, Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign in Philly and Poor Magazine in the Bay Area, which are poor people-led organizations for economic justice, that they're just kind of like, just keep moving money, just keep moving money. Like something that will keep you in motion and keep you like active is better than something that shuts that like mm-hmm. finds a best and then shuts down movement and growth and change because we're going to hopefully grow and change our whole life. Um, well, and I've seen in those articles, it's usually like, and then this couple who were both really into effective altruism, they both decided to become computer programmers and then work at Amazon because that was the way they could make the most wealth to then buy the most, you know, like bed nets, nets or something. Yeah. And it's like, well, what is the harm that they're creating in both yeah. like working at Amazon or like the... Um, other ways that they're like moving through the world and like the lack of opportunity there to address like the harm that might be caused in accumulating the wealth that they're so eager to give like towards effective philanthropy. Yeah. Well, also I think there's like underlying things with like mosquitoes are only present in hot climates and we're going to have more hot climates because of climate change. So if you really like, we're going to need more and more mosquito nets if we don't do anything about climate change and, like, we can actually address the underlying problem. But the underlying problem can't be addressed with mosquito nets. Like, the underlying problem actually has to be addressed with policy and practice. And I think that, like, there is a tension specifically in Jewish giving because I think there is, in in general in giving, I think there's, like, a lot more of a desire for philanthropists to see a return on investment and to be like, well, if I give this many millions, I want to see this many people alive at the end of this or this many people cured or whatever, which I totally understand. But also I have thought a lot about how like you, most of the time you don't get to the point where you can get those results until somebody has done a lot of like really hard work organizing and talking and building relationships and like understanding the problem. And so there's just like a lot of ground to cover in terms of like things we need to understand better and do better on on a like global policy perspective before we can be like, here, I'm going to like throw a bunch of money at this problem and solve it. And I think that like that, that there is like a humility, like Jessica was saying, of like just understanding that like your money actually can't solve the problem necessarily. You actually need to like step in with yourself and your brain and your like ability to talk to other people. And, um, and I think like that is actually, some people are more comfortable with that. I I I love talking to people, but some people are like way less comfortable with that because those conversations are hard. You're actually trying to convince somebody of something, you know, maybe in a long-term way, but it's it's different work than just like hitting a button on a computer and being like, there, I gave you $1,000. Um, you may have to work really hard to get that $1,000, but the actual giving it, giving it away is easy and the changing of minds and the helping people to see the importance of the thing that you're trying to work on is very difficult or can be. Absolutely that. And this thing about like funding movements, I want to come back to because I, one of the, I, I do love the part of research generations mission that talks about redistribution of land, wealth and power funding mosquito nets while totally wholly important life saving or any sort of protective, you know, I think like, especially during COVID we like know we, there's very important work funding, things that keep people materially safe right now and also shifting power. I think the question is like, how do we long-term redistribute power? It's not, it's not just like the cash that is um, 
being hoarded in one place, though the cash hoarding is really, really bad. It's also like who has self-determination over life and land and decisions. Um, and where is power? What's another word for hoarded? Like you know, concentrated. Concentrated. Yes, that's my word. That's our word. Um, and a thing about funding movements is that it redistributes power. It puts power into the hand, more democratically into the hands of more people. And that is really important for the future we're, we're building. Um, and I think that's like, I, to come back around to like why Kahila a community is an important concept to me in money moving is like, who do I think of as in the communities that I'm interdependent with and responsible to and accountable to? I think my ancestors had like a really strong sense of Kahila and I think I'm like shifting it I'm like using it a little bit differently than they did, but also like in the spirit of and the like redistributing power, power shifting work, which like funding movements and doing um, forms of giving that actually shift like who's making decisions about the money and where it goes and how it's moved is part of that work. I have a question about um, age. I noticed on the Resource Generation website that there is like actually a specific age group that Resource Generation is for. Um, and I'm curious, um, about how you feel about kind of concentrating this work within the age, which I believe was 18 to 35. Um, and like my sub question is, I have really been thinking about this a lot as somebody who has access to a lot of wealth because I have children and I've been thinking about like how I have these conversations, um, with my children in a way that's like honest and authentic and doesn't perpetuate some of the feelings that I heard a lot of us talking about of like not really being clear about what kind of resources um, my family has. Um, and I feel like the, yeah, I'm curious if, if there is, if research generation is doing anything both maybe for people who are a little bit outside of the specific age bracket that it's geared towards and also towards kind of like, teaching families to have these conversations within themselves so that, um, you know, maybe it's a conversation that you could bring to your parents or bring to your children and how you would kind of start to have those conversations over time. I think there's something powerful about organizing young people and like young people led movements. <laughs> I wasn't around when they like made the decision. I imagine it was part like it's fun to do this, like with peer groups or maybe like younger people are more open to exploring like different ways of thinking about wealth or different ways of thinking about redistribution. Um, and I think that there is a lot of work within resource generation. Like if you're aged out like I thought <laughs> I thought Jessica had aged out like uh I turned 35 month. a month ago I, I thought I aged out I, I, was, I was like add me to the alumni list and they were like no 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 you got another 11 months and three weeks so <laughs> 35 <laughs> year olds out there join but me there are, but there are like alumni praxis groups or like alumni programming so you could still reach out to resource generation get connected with resources or get connected with community that way there's some other groups that have like a wider rate age range like there's um old money, new systems. There's um, like the Wealth Redistribution Academy of Practitioners. There's, there's, there's like a couple other orgs. Um, I'm happy to share more resources because I think that 
part of like this, like looking at inheritance or like ending inheritance or redistributing inheritance is about shifting these family systems. And so for me, I was really grateful to have like a community of peers. as like a 20 something, like trying to like learn what integrity could look like for me as like a wealthy person. And then that work has definitely spread in my family, like to my parents' generation and to my grandparents and um, wider. Like I got to speak to my shul last summer on Juneteenth, like about reparations and supporting black economic sovereignty. And it was really powerful because like 10 years ago when I was talking to my family about like reparations, people would be like, you are out of your mind. Like we were not here when there were slaves here. Like what does reparations have to do with us? It's like white Jewish people like in this country. And now like I think through being in conversation, also some of the cultural shifts that's happening, like in part because of the movement for black lives as well. Like now, like after that shul talk, my grandma was like talking to her friends about like why I care about reparations and how she's thinking about reparations. There were like a bunch of like old ladies in shul yeah. that were like so hype about it, you know, like so interested in like supporting like black led movements for justice. And so I think that there's this way in which like it's not exclusive to young people, like this ability to like kind of like question these systems or like question what inheritance means or like why we would want inheritance. Um and then also like kind of like this parent, I think like another kind of like implicit thing around like the parent-child question and the question that Zahava asked earlier is like this piece around like when and how does wealth create safety? I think something that's been really hard for my family when I, so I inherited two trust funds like of about $2 million when I was in my early 20s and my mom really didn't want me to give it away. Um, and for good reason, she was like worried about me. Like I didn't have like a, super clear career path. Like, I wasn't super sure what I mean, was going to happen. you were a really impressive comic artist at the I time. I was like, making a lot of say. comics, but that's not, like, a super lucrative <laughs> industry. <laughs> and so my mom was like, you know, like, really good comics. like what, what is your, you know, life going to look like? What is safety going to look like for you? You know, like, if you give this money away, like, how will you feel about it later? Like, will you regret it? And I think it's been really powerful for me to work with my family to understand, like, how do we create safety? Like certainly like having access to a certain amount of wealth creates like, um, you know, like can protect you in a certain way, but it like can't absolutely protect you. can't like protect you from climate change. Like there's always things that we can't imagine. And I think something that happens at families is like at whatever wealth level people are concerned, they're not going to have enough to protect themselves. Whether they have $100,000 or $10 million, they're like, oh, well, what if I get this disease and the only cure is $12 million? Like what then, you know? And so there's really no, no, you can like go through a financial planning process and figure out what amount of wealth like would make you and your family feel safe. And then also there's no objective answer or like no end really to that wealth accumulation if the goal is safety and if we're like living in this system where we you know we can't guarantee safety with like wealth and so that's a long answer to that but I think I just wanted to get at that feeling that it's like it's real I think like we have been trained that like wealth equals safety and I think that it's also obviously not true <laughs> there's like many times when like wealth doesn't create safety and so I think looking at it ourselves and figuring out okay well what is what feels like enough? Like, what is enough? That's an answerable question that you can figure out with your family or like with a financial planner. And then what does it look like to experiment with that over time or to try giving more or to figure out if there's ways to share some of the resources that you have with your community or those kinds of pieces? For me, there's been a process of kind of like reality testing as I think like psychologist term of like, uh, okay, this is what I'm taught. And then how does this map on to what I'm 
seeing around. And I think, you know, again, I think we've both said like wealth hoarding will not create endless safety. We should also acknowledge like wealth does create a shit ton of safety. Like there are things that, you know, and I, we've both seen this in our, in our family. I'm kind of like the kind of healthcare that my dad had when he was dying and how long he was able to stay alive. Like that was a wealth based. A lot of that was very much wealth based. So I, I don't think either of us want to say like money has no connection to your safety, wellness, health and well-being in the world. Like we want people to be healthy and sustained and thriving. And so none of us are kind of like or neither of us are like burn it up and then see what happens tomorrow. Like we, you know, we both have done. <laughs> Kate's laughing at me. (laughs) We've both done like money planning that involves like, yeah, I want to like have some, have like some amount, some, you know, for me, it's like a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars, like at different, you know, that's like in my bank account for like when for emergencies for like in my, you know, for like who I'm taking care of in my life and my own needs. And that's going to be different for different people based on family, based on dependence, based on health and all sorts of different factors. Um, I think we're just kind of like, or part of the approach that we bring to it is like the the well-being of the broader world outside of our lives, family, and community is one of the things that we like calculate when we, and, and not just like in a math way, but like feel into with our hearts and bodies and spirits when we're, when we're calculating like how much is enough for me and then what is the world I'm trying to live in that we yeah, kind of like expand the circle. Yeah. And the wealth that you hold onto or the wealth that's there, like for your family, like you can invest it in communities. Like you could invest it in like right. radical black led movements for justice. Like there's a lot of really beautiful ways to like hold money over time or do like values aligned investing. And so there's ways to do that and do giving there's ways to, um, share like resource you know property or share like space share tools that you buy you know like there's lots of ways to get creative we often talk about it as like the solidarity economy some people say like new economy or next economy but there's a lot of beautiful work that's happening there too i feel like kate we've used the term extractive economy a few times and like new economy a few times and do we have time to just like define those yeah that would be great okay i mean part of this is like the work of movement generation and we mentioned earlier but like Basically, they have the idea that our current economy is an extractive economy. It is, you know, like the primary worldview is around like individualism, consumerism. You know, it's enforced through violence, you know, like these different pieces. Work is exploitative. And then we're working on fighting those conditions and building a new economy, a regenerative economy where, you know, like work is sacred, where relationships are valued, where resources are shared, you know. And so there's a lot of there's a big body of work around it that I think is really beautiful and interesting and like we're does I don't think we'll get to it today it sounds like but like a lot of like the Jewish economy work is around applying those principles around you know like Jewish values to understanding like how we could transform the economy in a way that would work for everyone well I think there are a lot of resources that you both have on hand that I would love to have you point our listeners to. So if you don't mind um, sharing a whole mess of links with us that we will include in show notes um, so that people can keep reading, keep learning and keep exploring these ideas, we would really appreciate it. Love to. And we, we will love to hear from people about what, what everybody's doing with their money, what they want to be doing questions. Uh, I, a principle I think of, 
the kind of economies that we're imagining is that there's much less siloing of like these people are the experts about money and everybody else just has to do what they say. Um, but just to say there's like a big body of wisdom um, out there in the world and we will only get there together. All of us. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. This was such a great and inspiring conversation. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank so you so fun. much. <laughs> that was great. It's a, I'm, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for Kate's shul conversation on <laughs> Juneteenth, just because I feel like the language that she's speaking is a totally different vocabulary um, yeah. than, and I wonder if she code switched for that audience or not. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I think in general, like the there is such a specific way that the Jewish community talks about giving. And yeah, the way that Kate and Jessica were talking about giving was not like that at all. Um, and I think that's just like super interesting because I think we've just been trained in the Jewish world to think about things in a certain way. And also, I mean, it's not just the Jewish world. Like I think the Jewish philanthropy in the Jewish world is not like super different from philanthropy outside the Jewish world. Um, there are differences, but I think it's like pretty sim similar, but I think the kind of like not corporate philanthropy, but like, I don't know, normative philanthropy is like, has a very specific like tone and flavor. And this is just not that. Yeah. I mean, Jessica didn't even use the word giving. Right. It's like it's right. moving money right? Um, because like there's there's a sense that it's all ours and like in a collective way and it's about getting it to to the places where it's needed. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very interesting framing. OK, should we move on to our second segment? Let's do it. Zahava, do you want to kick it off? Sure. So a lot of people are thinking really hard about their charitable giving right now, just to continue the theme, whether they're trying to support racial justice work or help people affected by the pandemic or any number of other things that feel really pressing right now. There's a well-known Talmudic statement that when you're faced with a choice of where to give, the poor of your own city take precedence over the poor of another city. So think about this kind of hierarchy of giving as it plays out today. We're actually going to do a text study together. So the source sheet will be linked in show notes if you'd like to follow along. Um, but we're going to be discussing these sources together to try and think about where Judaism suggests we should be directing our money when we have a choice. Um, and this is something that I really wanted to talk about with you guys because I think there's this, I don't know, supposition in traditional sources that there are cities with rich people and poor people in them. And that that's sort of a universal fact of where we all live and, and all of our communities. And then you sort of have to think about that. But I'm not sure that that frame feels true anymore. And I'm also not sure that that frame reckons with how well acquainted we might be with the need in other places um, as we are today. So I'm really excited to discuss that with you guys. Yeah. If you look in um, in Sefer Shemot in the book of Exodus um, in chapter 22, verse 24 says, um, if you lend money to my people, im kesef tilveh et ami, um, to the poor among you, et ha'ani imcha. And that phrase, this is introducing the prohibition on collecting interest, um, but that phrase, my people, the poor among you, gets parsed out by the Talmud. Um, so there's a discussion in Tractate Bava Metziah, um, 
page 71A, that parses that out into various layers. So if you lend money to any of my people, my people means Jews. And so if a Jew and a Gentile come to borrow from you, the Jew, the my people take precedence. Okay, well, if uh, a poor person and a rich person come to borrow, because we're talking about the poor among you, then the poor person takes precedence. If we're talking about the poor of your city versus the poor of another city, since it's the poor among you, the poor of your city takes precedence. Um, so all of these things, this this hierarchy of Jews first, um, the, the needy first, and the local first is a really interesting framing of, of what is assumed to be most important in giving. And Zahava, I just wanted to if, if people are following along in the um, source sheet, there's also, even before the poor of your city, Baba Metzia says, if your per- poor person, meaning one of your relatives, and then one of the poor of your city comes up, that the one who is your relative comes before the poor of your city. And I think we'll see that play out a little bit later on. But that, I don't know, that just feels like another layer of distinction or of closeness to to draw. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I, I skipped that in my skim. There was something that can feel kind of problematic about this of being like, well, what about, there could be people that are much worse off that are not local to your city. Um, and like, let's say you live in like a fancy suburb. There are probably people who in in a city not very far away who are doing, who are have more need than people in your literal town or city. Um And I think that, and so, and just like around the world, like there are people um, in other countries that are living on, you know, less than a dollar a day and you can make them, you can get a bigger like bang for your buck proverbially, perhaps by giving money um, in those places. But something that I think about is just how, like, ultimately we actually have no choice for the most part. Like the people that you know the best are the people closest to you. And you are best able to evaluate, like, if someone in your family is needs help, like, you are probably one of the people best suited to know whether or not they need help. And if somebody in, like, Bhutan is living in poverty and really needs help, like, you probably are not the best person to know what kind of help they need and if they need help more or less than the person in your family. Like you just can't evaluate that. And I think that in a way what this source is saying is like, you have to start with what you can reasonably know. And if you start kind of expanding the circle to like anyone anywhere who's suffering, then like, first of all, you end up doing, having to do set up a hierarchy of suffering that can be just like impossible to really navigate because there is so much suffering in the world. And because like it can span, it can just be so many different kinds of things, you know, like it can really span like people who like can't afford shoes for their children to like people who can't afford medicine for themselves. And like, how do you necessarily weigh those two things? Um, But like what this is really telling us is like the closer something is to you, the bigger your obligation to address it, which is, I think, like, just in a way, the most logical way to approach it. I am curious, 
what you guys think of a very modern example, which we've all encountered, of somebody who is very close to you fundraising, doing a birthday fundraiser on Facebook, doing a race that's a fundraiser um, for something that is potentially far from you. Where do you think that falls? So interesting. I feel like what's happening there is that the person who is close to you is vouching for the thing that's far from you. Interesting. Yeah. Like what they're saying is, okay, you're not in a position to evaluate this cause, but I've done it on your behalf. But what you're usually doing when you're contributing to those things is not saying, ah, this person who's close to me has given their hechsher to this cause. Therefore, I believe strongly in its importance. What you're really doing is saying, I recognize the importance of this person to me and I want to support them in a thing that's important to them. Right. And so in my head, it's, it's sort of barely charitable giving um, most of the time. It's usually more of an exercise of friendship, right. which feels like a totally different thing. I think that actually that the sources here, charity equals giving to the poor, right? And that we have like lots of different categories of giving in our modern lives that are not about helping poor people be less poor. The difference between charity and philanthropy is already huge, right? Like giving to the New York Symphony Orchestra is philanthropy, but it does not feel like charity. Giving money to a person who's panhandling on the street is charity, but I'm not sure that it's philanthropy. And the kind of social justice investment that we were talking about in the previous segment is kind of neither of those things in in the traditional sense. It's, it's more of like investing in the world that you want. And all these things have different shades. And I sometimes have trouble applying this frame of, you know, rich and poor. Um, there's, it's like, I don't know, the, the, the metaphors for God's interaction with people that you encounter in commentaries or in the Talmud, it's like, well, if a king is approached by a pauper and you're like, okay, this is just like not how I think about the world, but this, this dichotomy between uh, those who have wealth or power or influence, and then like the poor among you assumes a kind of finite categorization of people that doesn't feel like it rings true to my experience right now. I want to push back about on that a little bit because I think in my personal life, something that I, I because I am a foster parent, I have become really close with some families that live in a level of poverty that I've just, I would not be acquainted with anyone um, who lives like this were it not um, for my life as a foster parent. Um, and I have also done things like spend time in a public housing apartment as a result of this. And so I have like a much deeper and clearer understanding of what that looks like, um, and the kind of amazingness of like having an apartment, a three bedroom apartment that maybe only costs $120 a month, but also, um, like I have a pretty clear sense of like how crappy that apartment is and how it can still be really hard to get $120 a month every month. Um, and that has really just made, made it clear to me how like, there's like, literally millions of people in that situation in the city that I live in. And, um, I happen to just know a handful of them, but that has changed my perspective so much. And the truth is in my circle of friends, 
I can't think of more than two other people who I'm friends with who I think are like no people who live in that level of poverty, even though there are many, many of them. Um, and I think that like, it's just really easy as a middle class or upper middle class person to be like, I don't actually like, there aren't like poor people. Like what, what does that even mean? But it's like, it's not hard to find people who are really poor. It's just that like, it's actually too easy to get stuck in a place where you are, are literally not um, interacting with people like that. Or maybe you are, you know, like maybe they're the people who make your coffee at Starbucks um, or take care of your grandma. Yeah. I was going to say, take care of your, take care of your kids. Like the other, there's somebody who I help with rent almost every month. And like the reason I know her is because she worked at my daughter's daycare. Um, and like, those are, (laughs) those are people for whom like, like paying the electricity bill and the phone bill and having money for food and having money for rent is almost never possible for her in any given month. Yeah. And I think what you're challenging in a way is how narrow our conception of your city is, right? What does it mean? The poor of your city, right? If the poor of your city is, um, is your upper income enclave today, right? Because this is my Dalit Amot, right? This is the sphere of, of space within which I live and work, then, um, then the, the, the real need that is just outside that line doesn't feel like, may not feel like your city in the same way, but some of this is, is to challenge you to think that way. I mean, in a way, I think that the biggest challenge in this hierarchy um, to progressive values is that Jews come first. Right. That that first hierarchy, it's like, oh, well, you know, the Gemara even questions later, like, why do we even need to say the Jews come first? Of course, Jews come first. And then they need to parse it further to figure out what your lack of understanding might have been on that topic. Um, I was talking to a friend um, who's a Jewish community professional uh, some months back and talking about my own career prospects and what I was thinking about in terms of next steps. And he was like, you know, and I work in public policy in a way that doesn't focus at all on the Jewish community, but that does entail some knowledge and skills that theoretically could be applied in Jewish institutions. And that person said, so, but do you have any interest in the Jews? (laughs) And I said, no, (laughs) (laughs) like, well, I, honestly have focused on what I feel like are needier causes than the Jews. Right. And he was like, well, y- you may be looking past some, some real poverty and need in the Jewish community as well, um, which is, again, another sort of narrow conception of what is my community and my city and what I'm, what I'm seeing and what I'm not. But the, the notion that uh, your people is where you should draw an important line is also really challenging, I think. I um, am a part of an organization that actually Mimi um, told me about, the Female Hebrew Benevolent Society. (laughs) Resident female Hebrew here. Um, And (laughs) ready to be benevolent. And uh, (laughs) what um, FHBS does is gives money to Jewish women in poverty in the Philadelphia area. And it's like weird to me because I actually don't think that I know Jewish women in poverty. Um, but like we, 
give away like hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. And I think like a lot of that money goes to elderly people, um, uh, elderly women who are like really living, um, just really scraping by with the absolute barest of necessities. Um, and those people are often invisible to us because of their age, um, because maybe they live in assistant living or maybe they can't get out because of mobility issues. And so they, you know, they are our people, like they are Jewish and they may live very physically close to us, but they may not be people that we know because, because of some of those challenges. And sometimes it's people who like are doing what they can to preserve their dignity and not let other people know, um, how, financially insecure they are and how much they are struggling. Um, and so being a part of FHBS has really given me a little bit of eyes into how much need there is for Jews in this city. And I do think that like, well, speaking for myself, like I am definitely part of Jewish communities where there are people who have access to lots of resources and, there are probably people in these communities that have less resources, but there's not very many people in these, com in the communities that I'm a part of that are like almost no money, barely scraping by, but there are Jewish people like that. They just like, don't come to shul right. um, in a lot of cases because it costs $3,000 to join a shul. And like, that's not in their budget. Or they can't get there, as you mentioned right. earlier. I mean, right. I think you know, working in social services focused on Jews, I have seen so much Jewish poverty um, that is really shocking. And then now in my current role, I work with Jews and non-Jews. Um, and I might get some pushback for this. I'm happy to accept it. But it is amazing when you're writing a micro grant for somebody it's sort of like if you find out they're Jewish, it's as if you found out they're a veteran or that, you know, they have they are in some special class because now now, you know what, I'm gonna to apply to the Chaste Eliyahu or whatever, or I'm gonna get that gamach um to give you the hospital bed that you need. And there's just this whole world of resources that that I wish there were more. Um and then when I meet with somebody who is not Jewish, is not a veteran, does not have children living in their home, um, that's when you really see the dearth of resources. Um, and I live in this sense of obligation and guilt um, and, and like pride that there are people organizing money and resources for the poor, the poor Jews of our city um, and guilt that there are so many other groups that just, that, that there's not a chaste Eliyahu um, for them. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a, a good opening to our next set of sources, which draws on a different um, Torah verse. So in Devarim in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 15, verse seven says, if there is a needy person among you, one of your kinsmen in any of your gates in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So, um, um, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy kinsmen. So, 
So this seems sort of like a general exhortation to give, um, but there's uh, a parsing in the Sifri. Um, if there will be in you a pauper, so again, uh, Jew rather than Gentile, but then pauper, the neediest takes precedence. Of one of your brothers, your brother from your mother, one of your brothers, your brothers from your father. Um, this is the, the great Jewish tradition of uh, assuming that no word is being wasted here and we're trying to cover all of our bases. We are hereby taught that your brothers from your father take precedence to your brothers from your mother. In one of your gates, the inhabitants of your city take precedence to those of another. In one of your gates, if he sits in one place, you are obliged to help him. If he goes begging from door to door, you are not. In your land, the inhabitants of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, take precedence over those who live outside the land that the Lord your God gives you. This extends the obligation to all places. So there, there's an acknowledgement that there are these many dimensions of, um, of who might be asking and, and sort of what qualifications they might bring to that, that need, like you're talking about, Mimi. Um, so this is a different verse that also brings up the precedence of Jews over Gentiles, of the poor of your city over the poor of others, of the precedence of your family over those who are not related. But this one introduces the idea of um, if there's a needy person among you um, and emphasizes that um, that the poorer person takes precedence. Um, and we... I um I remember actually I'm going to give credit to um to a college friend of mine Yoni who um brought this source in a class a million years ago, um so the Chatam Sofer, um Ramosa Schreiber, um 19th century scholar um in a responsum is drawing on this source to say if there is a needy person among you, um it also interprets the poor of your nation take precedence, um. And uh, the poor of your relatives take precedence. For this reason, was the neediest take precedence written first, written before the poor of your nation take precedence and the poor of your city come before of another city? It is so as long as both need food or clothing. But if the poor of your city have what they need to live but have no extra, in that case, the poor of another city may come first because the neediest take precedence. So the the neediest is comes first in this sequence of parsing to show you that it's the neediness that matters most. However, the Sifrei also interpreted if there's a needy person among you for the poor of your household, we do not say the neediest takes precedence, but rather they come first with regard to all their needs, even before the poor of your city that have no food or sustenance. So there's a sense of the primacy of your obligation to the people in your household first, and then it's about how needy is that person really, um, because once you're applying the rest of the hierarchies, you're assuming equal need. So that was a lot. That was three sources at once, but they're all sort of parsing the same verse. So I thought it was useful to give it all at once. How do we, I, I don't know, how do you all think about this? I mean, Tamar, you were talking before about how the closeness of, of someone to you enables you to evaluate how real and extreme their needs are in a different way. So something that I was thinking about while you were um, reading through this is the Yehuda Amichai poem, The Diameter of, a, of the Bomb, which is about a suicide bomb and um, is about like circles of grief and like the literal size of the bomb and then the people who are affected by it. And at the end, it says that the circle went all the way around the world. Um, 
And this made me think of that because it's really about, it's about like literal spheres of influence, um, or not literal spheres, but it's about, um, spheres of influence and trying to limit or, or trying to give precedence over the ones closest to you. Um, and in a way it's kind of developing the same kind of hierarchy as Maimonides, like ladder of Tzedakah. Um, but I think that it does, it's already trying to take into this, there's already some negotiation about like, what do any of these terms really mean? (laughs) Like your family, well, your, your siblings through your mother, your siblings through your father and like your household, what does that mean? Because like, I mean, I've certainly had whole families living in my house that are not at all related to me. Um, and that's actually, it's somewhat, um, remarkable in the Jewish community, but it's not remarkable in the world in general. Like it's actually quite common. So I think that like in a way, what this makes me think about is just like figuring out how you, where you draw the lines in terms of your community. Like who is, who is your immediate family? Um, and who comes right outside of that and who comes right outside of that? And, um, what can you know about, you know, like if there is a natural disaster in some area and you may feel called to give money to it because you suddenly know about it, but that doesn't mean that like there's some other area that hasn't just had, you know, like, you know, if there's a natural disaster and suddenly people lose access to safe water, you might be like, I'm going to give some money towards that. But like, we also know that like Flint, Michigan hasn't had safe water for like almost 10 years. So like, I think what this, these sources are kind of pointing to is like how everyone actually has to figure out what their circles are in order to even begin giving to people. I'm hearing sort of, I think I'm hearing Jessica or Kate in my ear about, um, first of all, not letting that stop us from giving, um, right. That I think, it can sort of freeze you. I know that in my conversations in my household, when we talk about giving, um, we talk about like giving to the Jewish community, giving to um, our very local economy, giving nationally and giving globally. And then we just like go crazy figuring out like, what does that mean and where and to whom? Um, And that does freeze us often for months. So that's one thing, but I think in addition to these questions sort of sometimes stopping us, I just want to put a pin in the idea that giving within the family often also can become a way to stop us from giving outside because you, I, I might think, well, yes, I could give to a Boston food bank, let's say, but I'm also concerned about this person in my family or what's going to happen to my nephew's day school fund or, you know, these can become ways of freezing ourselves um, that I'm really trying to free myself from that fear of, of being perfect um, and giving in the right perfect order. 
Some of this, I think, comes down to the questions that we were talking about a little bit with Jessica and Kate around how much is enough for you to keep or how much is enough for people in your life to have. Because I think that I've had this sort of casual notion of, quote unquote, rich people's giving is when you have enough that you don't notice that you've given. If you could write that check for however many thousands or millions of dollars and still live in your fancy house and go on your fancy vacations and have your whatever it is, like all the markers of affluence you want to put in that list, you know, there's a different conversation to be had about the notion that you might have an obligation to scale down the lifestyle you've envisioned yourself in order to enable giving, but that also extends to, you know, the Khatam Sofer is talking about um, giving to the members of your household first so that they have plenty or enough in a in a grander sense, and that comes before subsistence giving for other people. Um, but how expansive is your notion of enough for those people? Right. I think though that like this, that's something that I feel like is a kind of trapdoor in some of these conversations because these sources are actually pretty specifically talking about like the avion, like the person who is really missing something. Like there is an emptiness in their life. Um, and I think that we often like there's just a problem in our society that like college could easily cost you like a quarter of a million dollars. And like day school, if you were to go that way, is very expensive. And just like regular, not particularly expensive middle-class life is still a lot of money. And I think that um, it's very easy to be like, well, it's very easy to be like, what about my nephew's day school fund? Or what about making sure that I can put away enough money for college? And I, it's not that I think those things are not important. I just think that like they sometimes it's easy to concentrate on that when you're and not think about the fact that like that is um, several levels of magnitude above like the po- the federal poverty line, which is just like alarmingly low. Like there's so many people who can barely get by and they're nowhere near the federal poverty line. Right. Um, and so I think that like. I do worry about things that are, I do worry about things like, you know, paying for college and just like things that feel expensive that, sh- that I'm like, oh, that's like a lot. And I don't necessarily feel really comfortable with that. But I, I feel like these sources, for me, they really push me to, and I guess I'm just like repeating things I've said before, but to really see a level of poverty that. I think that I spent a lot of my life like trying to like training myself to not see. And now I feel like in the last 10 years, I'm like trying to train myself to see it. And I feel so lucky isn't the right word, but I just, it feels so important to me to like learn to see those things. And I do think that like, that's in a way what these sources are pointing to is like, you have to address the things that you can see. Um, and so you need to start by seeing the things that are closest to you. Tamar, you had added some sources to the source sheet that, um, focused a little bit in a different direction about the way you view need that you see. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I want to go to um, to a source from um, Ketubot. And so the way that I came across this source is um, on Shavuot this year, because I wasn't going to uh, Tikkun the way I normally would. What I basically did was I just like keep every source sheet that I get whenever I go to like any Jewish thing where they hand me a source sheet and I just have them in a big file folder. And on, um, on Shavuot, I just like brought that big folder downstairs and I was like, everybody pick a source sheet. Like we're going to just talk about whatever is here. Like people already did the work for us. And so, um, my stepdaughter pulled out a source sheet, um, from a session that I went to 10 years ago in 2010, led by, um, Rabbi Charlie Schwartz. And he had this source in it, which, um, the, I actually emailed him after Yentif because I was like, this source was on the source sheet and I don't understand it at all. And um, so, but the version that Zahava has on, on um, Safaria is like expanded in such a way that it's more clear what it is. So here, it, I'm just going to read it. This is what Rabbi Elazar said. Come and let us appreciate the swindlers who ask for charity that they do not need because were it not for them who command our attention and receive our charity, we would be sinning every day and failing to properly support the truly poor. As it is stated, beware that there be not a base thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of release is at hand and your eye be evil against your needy brother and you will not give him and he cry to the Lord against you and it be sin in you. Because the swindlers take our money in the name of charity, we have an excuse of sorts for failing to fully meet the needs of the truly poor. That's a very expanded translation, courtesy of Safaria. But um, <laughs> but this is in Tractate Ketubo, uh, page 68a. My reading of this is that Rabbi Elazar is saying is, we should appreciate the swindlers because they make it so that, because they, who, some, who ask for charity when they sometimes do not need it, Make it so that sometimes when we don't give charity, we can be like, that person might have been a swindler, and that is actually possible because there are swindlers out there. And if there weren't swindlers, then we would have to believe that actually every single person who asks, asks us for charity really needs it. And when we didn't give it to every single person who asks, then we would be sinners. But because there are swindlers out there, we're not necessarily swindlers. We're not necessarily sinners because the person who asks, who we then don't give to, might be a swindler. So what do you do with that? Do you think it's it's just letting us off the hook too easily? Well, I think it, it is letting us off the hook kind of alarmingly easily. But I think it also, like, what what I think is so interesting about it is that it, like, really is weirdly comfortable being like, yeah, we don't actually give zakat to everybody who asks. Like, sometimes we just say, like, I don't feel like it today. Or sometimes somebody asks us, we feel really uncomfortable with something about them, about the way that they're asking or the way that they look or smell. And we are just like, oh, I can't handle this. Um, and and I like, I don't think that's a good reaction on our part, but I think there's something actually refreshingly honest about being like, yeah, <laughs> sometimes when people ask for money, we like really don't want to give it because it feels bad for some reason to give it in that moment. And I think it all, what's also honest about it is like there are swindlers. And I think that that is a reason that people sometimes don't give is because they're like, well, am I being conned right now? Which is real. Like I definitely have been conned. <laughs> so, um, so I think that like, I guess what I appreciate about this is that it seems to in a weird way take seriously some of the kind of mental calculus that we're often doing when we are encountering situations where we 
are being asked to give. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I like love the outcome, but I kind of appreciate that it's taking this approach. Um, and also like, I don't know what a better outcome is. Like I do not give to every single person that approaches. I mean, now I don't give because it's like, when was the last time I was at an ATM? Like I literally have $0 in my wallet. Um, but like, even when that was not the case, I didn't necessarily give to everybody. Um, and I think that like, I don't have a like really great excuse, except that sometimes it feels not good. Um, and I think there's something important about saying like, sometimes it's going to feel really bad. I think there's like, uh, a, a kind of paternalism sometimes that I need to recognize and fight within myself when I'm asked where it's not like, I think this person isn't needy, but I think that a lot of people have a reaction like, um, who knows what they're going to spend that on. Right. Which is, which is different, right? The, a person might be genuinely needy, but also, uh, but also feeding an addiction. Um, and I think that people have used that as sometimes an excuse, sometimes a righteous justification. I don't just want to support that habit. I'm, you know, I want to, even if you see the signs around New York City um, that sort of feed this perception, give the homeless some change they can really use, call this number to let us know to direct city services that way. Um, there's, there's a sense that... Um, I, you doubt the, you doubt the capacity of the person who's receiving. Um, at the same time, when you extend that out to things like foreign aid as a matter of policy, that can have really destructive, Im uh, that can have a really destructive impact where there's sort of a, an American paternalism, like, oh, we know what poor countries should be doing with their money. So we're going to give the money in this form with this million strings attached. And it winds up being, um, you know, more red tape than, than support. I, this isn't a very well-directed thought, but I, I just think that there's, there are assumptions that we're making um, and that ultimately to a degree, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? Like your your mitzvah value, right? The the importance of giving tzedakah attaches to you and your intention, and like that's where your action ends in the equation. And the assumptions that you make about the person on the receiving end, um, they're not really about you, and they're not really about your your obligation in the moment. And so maybe that needs to be interrogated. Oh, but I think they are about you. <laughs> like the assumptions that I make when I like encounter someone who I think like might be high or drunk or just like not in a good place. Um, and I don't feel comfortable giving to them. Like that's really about my biases. And like, I don't know why they're drunk right now, but like, first of all, like <laughs> something that I've learned is I am a bad judge of whether somebody is on drugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also like, I don't, I don't know why they're acting that way. And they may have like a very good reason to want to be high right now. And like, I know nothing about that. And like my, my biases around, around that is, is really about me. Like, it's really about how I view the world. When I um, lived in Nashville, the rabbi of the Orthodox school there told me this story about how he used to get together with pastors of the churches that were like on the same block as our school. Cause Nashville's like a million churches. And so, 
was like the shul in several churches and the like leaders of all these congregations would sometimes get together for coffee. And one time they, all these men who lead these religious institutions were all getting coffee somewhere and somebody came up and asked them for money. And one of the pastors said, if I give you money, how do I know you're not just going to spend it on alcohol? And the guy goes, because I got my bottle right here. And like, <laughs> he was basically like, I already have my alcohol. Now I would like some money for something else. And I like think about that story all the time because it just like that, that pastor was like, I have an idea about like what I think you are like. And that guy was like, yeah. I do need alcohol and I already have it. And now I need food. <laughs> and like that, it just like, there's so much, that's such a rich interaction. And I think like, it, it's important to start thinking about like, what are the biases that I'm coming into these conversations with, or not even conversations. Cause how often are they conversations? They're like interactions, interactions. at best. Right. Um, yeah. And when I said that those assumptions were not about you, I think that I'm not disagreeing with you. I think that what I was saying was those assumptions about what the other person are going to do are actually not about your obligation to give. Right. Right. You're sort of shifting the important factors of the decision onto the other person when like you should be focusing on this a little bit goes back to what we were talking about earlier with effective altruism. Right. You don't have infinite dollars to give and people want to make sure that they're giving in the most effective way. And if, I think that if you like kept a running tally of every, every person who asked you on the street for money, and then at the end of the day said, okay, if I believed in the absolute effectiveness of giving to that person, how much would I have given in total? And then give all that money to an organization that does really effective work on homelessness, I would give you full credit, right? Mm -hmm. I think that there's, uh, there are questions about um, how you think about the recipient in all of these sources. Um, but we have such organized giving now, right? We have all of these mediating organizations um, that channel money in a different way that make the thought process about giving different, um, which, you know, like Mimi, you mentioned earlier about like giving to a community food bank, which is already, even though that's local giving, it's a different kind of mediating structure than making sure your neighbor has a hot meal. Right. But you can also, I mean, like we do have access to like very close direct giving now because of like GoFundMe and stuff like that. Like you can search for your zip code and be like, I'm just going to help the people who are like literally closest to me. Um, and I think, I don't necessarily think that's a good approach, but I also think that like, there are ways that we can do giving and sorry, I don't mean this to be an attack on you or what you just said. I just like have been processing this a lot. So I have a lot to say about it, but like we, part of the, part of the thing is actually, I think that we like give online now. So it's like, it feels very disconnected from people in a lot of ways. And that's more comfortable. <laughs> like it's easier to be like, I'm just going to like beeps and boops and like a hundred or a thousand dollars are going to go into something that I'm like, that feels good, which is like really different than like the, the work of sometimes like dealing with people who are difficult or scarier upsetting. And I don't think that we need to do that, but it's just interesting to me that we've so clearly divided those things now. Um, so that they're just like totally separate. 
I, I wonder if, if at a certain point it comes back to this idea of that Tamar, I think your source was bringing in that, listen, we can't all be perfect. We just have to acknowledge that sometimes we're not going to give, but don't forget that there is this obligation to give, right? And you can cut yourself a lot of breaks, but you cannot totally step back from the obligation to give. Whether you're, I, I think it comes back to like tying your giving to your own humanity. Yeah. Well, I think your humanity and your relationships, like I think that in a way that's what a lot of these sources are getting at is like, what are the relationships that you have? Mm-hmm. Which Shamar ties in really well to the last source that you um, you added this source in um, in Tractate of Abatra, page nine B, which is Rabbi Isaac said, anyone who gives a coin to a poor man is blessed with six blessings, but one who encourages him with words is blessed with eleven blessings. The idea that um, relating to the person who's asking as a human being um, and forming a relationship there has a separate and potentially greater value than just giving them the money that they need to buy whatever it is. Yeah. I hope that uh, I'll clean up our source sheet a little bit and we'll share it in show notes, but I hope that people are interested in following along and thinking about these ideas with us. And, um, and I'm glad that we were able to do these two conversations one right after the other, because I think that it really sharpened my thinking. Um, And I appreciated being able to talk it through with you guys. Thank you, Zahava, so much for pulling this text study together. It was really fun to do a text study with you both. Yeah, totally. All right. Are we ready to go on to some endorsements? Sure. Ready. All right. Mimi, what do you have to endorse? Okay. Um, I have two things to endorse. Big surprise. The first one... um, I want to recommend a TV show that I'm really enjoying. Um, It is streaming on the Stars Network, so you might have to get a subscription to Stars for a month if you so choose. Um, The show is called America to Me. Have either of you heard of this? Yeah. Zahava, it's about Ed Policy, and Tamar, it takes place in Chicago, so I feel like it might be your jams. Definitely have crossed <laughs> my social media feeds, but I have not actually watched it. It is a beautiful, um, it, it basically some documentary filmmakers follow, I don't even know how many kids, maybe 12 um, students at a public high school in a Chicago suburb called Oak Park um, that has just a really interesting racial history. Um, they do things like really break down what is this achievement gap that we're all talking with, talking about, and they get the high school students to talk about it. Um, and I am, I, I find that a lot of policy discussions obviously cannot be, you, you can't just have an anecdote to encompass like how big policy can be. But if you can make policy real in the lives of many people or just a handful of people, um, for me, it's just easier to wrap my head around like what is into, what does integration look like? What is, what is identity formation in high school look like? 
when you can follow these 12 people. I'm not, I just, I really want to highly recommend it to everybody. It's worth the $7.99 one month subscription to stars to follow these awesome kids. And please, please give special care to Grant, the freshman, who is so painfully awkward and adorable. There's a scene where a girl comes up to him at a dance and starts dancing with him. And he just can't stop talking about it afterwards. And I love him so. <laughs> how long so, are episodes? This is yeah, very important to my How long are episodes? Watch. Yes. Good call. They are 60 minutes. Okay. Give or take. Yeah. Awesome. Um, the second thing that I want to endorse is a piece um, called Jews and the Rising Costs of Whiteness. Um, it's by Melanie K. Kantrowitz. I'll see if there's a way for me to link to it. Um, it's, for me, just a really helpful distillation of um, what it means to be white and Jewish in the United States and how my Judaism can give me a special lens into whiteness. Um, and yeah, I, I want to just point people to, in particular, this one part she talks about um, speaking at an anti-racist um, meeting in New York City. She's a lesbian, white, Jewish woman. And she starts talking about intersecting identities and she asks any other queer people in the audience to stand up. And a few people stand up and like lots of applause. They're really proud of their queerness. And then she does the same thing um, with any Jews in the crowd. And she said, a few people popped right up. I'm quoting now. A few people popped right up and then I could feel the tension, could see people looking around and a few more stood and more and more. By the time the Jews had finished standing up, Practically every white person in the room was on his or her feet. Then came applause, scattered and nervous. Instead of taking pride in the number of Jews committed to fighting racism, instead of absorbing the plain fact that with a few exceptions, Jews were the anti-racist whites in this crowd, instead of asking why so many Jews see the fight against racism as essential, there was fear, classic Jewish fear of vis visibility. Fear we'd be seen by our anti-racist com comrades as too many, too powerful. Indeed, I did not hear our comrades in the audience celebrate our strength. Um, I just, this moment feels really powerful to me. Um, and I felt really seen by that calling out of Jewish fear of being noticed. Um, anyway, it's a beautiful piece and it has a lot more in it than just that. So I'm excited to share it with you all. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. So Hava, what do you have to endorse? Um, so I have the endorsement I plan to make, but I'm just going to drop in a quick uh, a quick reference to something else that I'm um, remembering based on our conversations, which is a book from 2015 called How the Other Half Banks, Exclusion, Exploitation, and Threat to Democracy. Um, it's by Mirsa Baradaran, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Um, she's a professor at University of Georgia, I think. Um, but it's about the the experience of the half of Americans who don't have access to what we think of as quote unquote normal banking and credit. Um, and I think that there's just, you know, we were talking earlier about the 
the need and poverty and experience that people see or don't see, depending on their circles. Um, and one thing that was really helpful to me in reading this book is understanding just how people's lives intersect with the financial system um, in different parts of American society. I have to say that I don't think the prose in this book is awesome, um, but it's a really helpful, vivid understanding of just the structure within people's lives around banking and finance and what that means. And it's not dry, I promise. Um, so How the Other Half Banks, it's um, it's a really useful book. Um, her more recent book, The Color of Money, which is about the racial wealth gap, um, might have crossed people's, uh, people's radars already, but How the Other Half Banks is really worth it. Um, Another article that I want to point to, this is my intended endorsement. It's an article in Tablet by Joshua Chaffin called The Builders, How a Community of Holocaust Survivors Climbed from the Ashes of Europe to the White House and at What Price. Um, so this is an article from March, March 23rd, 2020. Um, and sort of the news peg for it is um, is the presence of Jared Kushner and the Trump administration and uh, and his role as um, the offspring of one of these Holocaust survivor uh, real estate builder families. Um, but the article's really not about Jared Kushner. It's about this um, interconnected tribe of um, families of survivors that went into real estate, all of whom um, moved to Elizabeth, New Jersey, and were part of the community that I grew up in. Um, and this is a really interesting uh sort of half a generation before I grew up understanding what was going on um, in these people's lives building up from survivor poverty into tremendous wealth and what that has looked like in terms of their interaction with their Jewish community and their interaction with the wider society and with each other. Um, and so I think that this is a fascinating article, even if you are not yourself from Elizabeth, New Jersey. So I totally recommend it, Joshua Chaffin, The Builders. That sounds great. Um, I also really definitely want to read How the Other Half Thinks. Um, that sounds great at my alley. Um, I want to endorse a game <laughs> um, called You Are Jeff Bezos. <laughs> um, basically it's, um, it's a game you play online. It's like choose your own adventure. And the conceit is basically you wake up and you are Jeff Bezos and you don't know how long you're going to stay Jeff Bezos since you weren't Jeff Bezos yesterday. And you have a hundred and as of today, I think $156 billion. So like, what should you do with your money? Um, and it is like fun and also really intense and also just like really helps you to think about like what, like why doesn't Jeff Bezos just do all of the things that you could do in this game? Um, so uh, I will put a link to it in the show notes. Um, it only takes like 10 minutes to, to play the game. Um, but I did it like two years ago now and it's still very much with me. So um, I totally recommend it. Um, and I also want to recommend a novel which doesn't have anything super Jewish about it, but it is loosely based on the Madoff scandal. It's called The Glass Hotel. And um, I'm going to forget the name of the writer. I'm going to look it up while I'm sitting here. Um, but it is also Emily St. John Mandel. Um, and it really like thinks a lot about, um, 
wealth and kind of corporate greed and how people kind of move up and down through wealth and class. Um, and I read it all in one long Shabbat and, uh, I just found it to be like really well written. It like kind of churned up a lot of like feelings and ideas for me about these things that are still kind of moving around in me um, three weeks later. So I think that's a pretty good yeah. <laughs> three weeks later in which like uh, 11,000 years somehow have, have elapsed. So, <laughs> so it feels like an extra good um, endorsement of the book that it like really got all that stuff. Um, going in me and it's still it's still there uh yeah yeah very cool i am so glad we had these conversations today i really really appreciated them and uh i just it's always really nice to get to talk to you too and i'm glad that we get to do it every month um go team All right. Well, thank you all for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you like us to discuss on a future episode. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You can search for Jewish Public Media to find us or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also, of course, donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a great way to make sure that we can keep bringing you the podcast every month. Thank you so much, Mimi. Thank you. This was great. Thank you, Zahava. Thank you, guys. And we'll see you next month.